I want you to know that the issue of the conscience is at the very core of Protestantism because uh, right at the launching of the Protestant movement, Martin Luther in 1521 makes this statement. He says, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I am more afraid of my own heart than of, of the Pope and all the cardinals. I have within me the great Pope self. That was Martin Luther's statement in regards to his conscience. Samuel Rutherford, who was very well-known Scottish Presbyterian pastor and theologian and one of the Scottish commissioners to the Westminster Assembly, lived back in the 1600s, and on the 29th of March in 1661, he made this statement, and I want you to listen to it carefully. He said, I find that when the saints are under trial and well humbled, little sins raise great cries in the conscience. But in prosperity, conscience is a pope that gives dispensations and great latitude to our hearts. The cross is therefore as needful as the crown is glorious. The cross is as needful as the crown is glorious. If I were to theme what we want to talk about today, it would certainly be summed up in Rutherford's words. Charles Hannon Spurgeon described Rutherford's lectures to be the nearest thing to inspiration, which can be found in all the writings of mere men. So Spurgeon greatly valued Rutherford and everything that Rutherford had to say. So based upon what Rutherford's statement has made and based upon what the Bible says from a theological standpoint, it's very obvious that trials that go on in your life and my life sharpen the Christian conscience. Times of prosperity and pleasure weaken it, And it's during times of hardship that the believer turns inward and begins to speculate what is wrong in my life. And these times are the disinfectant of the conscience. They cause the person to to ask the question, why is God permitting this in my life? What have I done in order to bring this about? So the absence of comfort is... Like the absence of food, hunger sharpens your senses to the aroma of food like trials sharpen your conscience to the presence of sin. There is an analogy between the two. Job's devastating hardships caused him to reflect deeply into his own conscience. Take your Bible for a moment. Let's go over to Job chapter 7. And you're going to need to have your Bible handy because we're going to do uh, major Bible drills during this session. Job chapter 7, we're interested in verses 20 and 21, and I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. Job chapter 7, verse 20. Have I sinned? Job asked the question, What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I am burdened to myself? Why then do you not forgive my transgression 
and take away my iniquity. For now I will lie down in the dust and you will seek me earnestly, but I will not be. It's obvious through all the difficulties and hardships and trials that Job was going through, it forced Job inward. It caused him to be introspective. It caused him to reflect what is going on in my life. What is it that I have done? What, what is it that has caused all the difficulty and hardship that has come raining down upon my head? And of course, the Bible is very clear about this. There is no direct cause and effect between Job's trials and his sinful nature. No direct because in all of this, Job did not sin by accusing God of wrongdoing. That's pretty obvious, right? But nevertheless, I want you to see that those difficulties and trials turned him inward to a deep searching of his own soul. What has happened here? What has occurred here? And in vain, he searches to find some kind of sin that he knows he has committed. There was nothing laying on his conscience. And then go over just a few chapters later, Job 10 and verse 6, where he says, um, he reflects on what God is doing in his life by sending these trials. He says that you should seek for my guilt and search after my sin. So again, Job is reflecting and making a connection between all the hardships and the trials and the losses that he has experienced in his personal life and and whether or not there is the presence of any sinful guilt in his conscience. So again, like Rutherford has said, it says, when the saints are under trial and well humbled, little sins raise great cries in the conscience. It causes a person to turn inward. David's conscience becomes acute when Nathan confronts him with his sin with Bathsheba. And he was not bothered with his sin until the fire of humiliation was heated up in his life. And I want you to see and listen how his conscience has been sensitized. In Psalm 51, in verse 6, David says, Behold, I delight in truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with the hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have crushed rejoice Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So you can see David's ultimate goal here, and that is to have a clean heart, or in Old Testament terminology, that actually meant a clean conscience. I need to have a clean conscience. Thomas Watson said, no flattery can heal a bad conscience, so no slander can hurt a good one. Now, in order to help you to see the relationship between hardships and trials and difficulties and how they have a purifying effect, David's terminology is purify me with the hyssop. Old Testament purification rituals under the Old Covenant involve the hyssop. 
But it becomes analogous to the fact that to be to use the hyssop was analogous to some kind of trial or difficulty that came upon a person's life. And so when David says, purge me with the hyssop and I shall be clean, wash me and I shall be whiter than the snow, he's talking about that inner work of God in a person's heart and in his conscience so that he can be whole. So take your Bible, let's go over to Hebrews chapter 12. Let's go to Hebrews 12 for a moment. Pick up in verse 4. There's so much that should, could be said about this in relationship to um, the broader context here. But in verse 4, Hebrews 12, it says, the writer of Hebrews says, You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he flogs every son whom he receives. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? Now look at verse 7 carefully. If I were to paraphrase this a little bit to help you with your understanding, um, the writer of Hebrews is basically saying at this particular point, it's through hardship in life, and it's through persevering of hardship in life, God has is bringing this hardship into your life. He's dealing with you as with a son. So when those hardships come in, God has a very important purpose for those particular hardships. That everything that happens that seems to be negative or a setback, every trial that occurs in my life, as a result of benevolent sovereignty of God, that particular trial is intended by God to be a form of discipline. To be a form of discipline. And the big question that always comes up, especially when people come for counseling, is a question is that often is asked, is, is God punishing me? Is God punishing me? Well, that's not what the text says, this particular point. Because the Bible, and especially in the New Testament, we see a very vital distinction between punishment and discipline. Very significant distinction between the two things, between punishment and discipline. And it's an important one that strikes right at the heart of soteriology and the doctrine of salvation. And that is the fact that once you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then all of your sins, past, present, and future, all the punishment for those particular sins have already been laid upon him once for all. The punishment has already taken place. So there is no additional punishment that should go on. In fact, you go back just a couple of chapters to Hebrews 10 for a moment. And look at this. This is very strong. This is part of the argument of the book of Hebrews. 
In Hebrews 10, verse 10, he says, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of, of Jesus Christ. How many times? Well, he says it once for all, right? In other words, that punishment was laid upon him. He received our punishment. That's why the cross is so precious to us. Because on that cross, he's the one who received the punishment for our sins. Verse 12 says, but he, speaking of Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. In other words, there is no ongoing punishment for those that are the people of God. God does not punish his people. He punished his son on behalf of his people. There's where the sacrifice occurred. Verse 14, for by one offering, he is perfected for all times. Wow, I love that phrase. He is perfected for all times. Those who are being sanctified. So it's through that one offering that all the punishment that God intended to be on our head is now redirected and placed on that of Jesus Christ. He's the one that received the punishment for sin. So you say, okay, if that's the case, then why do we as Christians and believers, why do we go through hardships? Well, I'm really glad you asked that question. Let's go back to Hebrews 12. Because again, it's very, very clear in Hebrews 12 why we go through these difficulties. Why do we go through these hardships? He says, now in verse... Eight, but if you are without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So the primary relationship between ourselves and God as believers, and only as believers, is that of son to father. Son to father. Primary relationship that we have to God prior to becoming a believer is that of subject to judge. God is the judge of all men. And our primary relationship to him before coming to Christ is that of judgment. But now our primary relationship to them is that of being a father. He is our father. We are his son. And so he has a special interest in our welfare. Now, sometimes I say to my classes, fashion your seatbelts and put your crash helmets on, all right? Look at verse 9, Hebrews 12, verse 9. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of our spirits and live? In other words, that's God the Father. For they, verse 10, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to him, but he disciplines us for our benefit, so that we may pay for our sins, right? No, because it's already been paid for. We know that from back in Hebrews 10. No, he says, so that we may share in his holiness. So that we may share in his holiness. That's not punishment. That's discipline. God does not punish his people. He punished his son. God disciplines 
his people. Verse 11, and all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. (laughs) And all God's people can say Amen. amen to that, right? For the moment, it does not seem to be joyful, but sorrowful. But to those who have been trained by it, that word train is a key word here in this passage. It is a form of training. Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You say, okay, if God is at work in my life internally and with my own conscience, when he brings trials into my life, he's working as a parent would discipline his son if that's the case. How do I know if this is works in my life? How will I know? Well, he answers it in verse 11. He tells us when we know it's worked because it will afterwards yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. In other words, after it's had its effect, there is no longer the pangs of guilt any longer because you've dealt with your sin. You've sought forgiveness from God and you've repented of that sin. God cleanses your conscience Those things have taken place, and your heart is at peace. In other words, you're no longer fighting God in your trial. You're no longer struggling with him. There's no angst. God, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this to me? You're not fighting him anymore. No, no, it's it's the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Righteousness is always a peaceful fruit. That's it. That comes from a very, very clear conscience in a person's life. Martin Luther makes the statement, he says, you should not believe your conscience and your feelings more than the word which the Lord who receives sinners preaches to you, end of quote. So if you believe the word and you believe what God has said in terms of your redemption and the fact that all the punishment for your sins, past, present, and future, he says for all time, as Hebrews 10 talks about, all of those sins have taken taken care of and the punishment's been received. Now God has invested an interest in you as one of his sons to make sure that he purifies your heart in terms of holiness so that you are more Christ-like and your conscience is clear and your heart on the inside is at peace with God. There's no longer any struggle. You're no longer fighting him. It's settled. That's the key thing. It's completely settled. Now, I want to take a look at this from the Old Testament into the New Testament for a moment, if we can, in order to kind of build just briefly, and there's so much we could say about this, but cannot, but give you a little bit of a broad theological study of the conscience in the Old and New Testament. So we're going to highlight a few key passages here. So have your Bible ready. You ready? 
Let's begin way back from the beginning of time. Let's go back to Genesis 3. And we are interested in verses 7 and 8. Genesis 3 and verses 7 and 8. It's obvious here in the fall that the conscience is at work. Verse 7 says, And the eyes of both of them were open. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin offerings or coverings, I should say. Then they heard the sound of the Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God in the midst of the trees of the garden. Their conscience is betraying them. That's why they have to hide. That's why they have to cover themselves over with fig leaves. Because they're ashamed of what has happened. This is their conscience at work in their lives. You know, sometimes you have people come in for counseling and there's a lot of sin in their life. I'm trying to work as a counselor to help them transition from a life of hiding Um, covering themselves over with fig leaves, uh, hiding in the bushes, to from being a Genesis 3 type of a person to being a 1 John 1 type of a person where they walk in the light as he is in the light and everything is exposed and they're not ashamed anymore and their conscience is clear. We're moving from Genesis 3 to 1 John 1. That's what we're doing So you can see from the very beginning of time, the Old Testament talks about the conscience. Even though there's no formal technical word in the Old Testament Hebrew for the word conscience, instead, the Hebrew term that's used is the word lave, which means heart. Heart. And the heart is not what we typically think that it is in our American European culture. Because we have a tendency in our culture to equate the heart with the emotions, romance, and feelings. And that's European-Americanism that has come in. That's, and every time we read the word heart in the Bible, we read that meaning into the heart. And it's totally misunderstood at that particular point because that's not the Old Testament concept of the heart. The Old Testament concept of lave or heart in the Old Testament is that it has to do with intentions, and purposes, and thought. In fact, go over just a couple of chapters to Genesis chapter 6. Verse 5, where it says, Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Right? Now, when it says Yahweh saw that in the Hebrew language, this is um, not a past tense. It's an imperfect type of tense. So it's as if Yahweh continually saw. He continually saw. He just continually saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that, notice how the heart is described. The heart is intending and thinking. That's the Hebrew understanding of heart. The heart is intending and thinking. That's what we do. So the heart... Whatever it does, it intends, it thinks, 
It purposes. And even Jesus understood the heart to be this way as well. Jump over just really quickly to Mark chapter 7. And notice the way that Jesus defines the heart here. In verse 21, he says, um, Jesus is speaking, he says, for from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, not feelings, not romance, but evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride. And foolishness, all these things proceed from within and defile the man. So you notice how Jesus highlights the fact that it's the heart of man, and it's from the heart, that evil thoughts come from. Again, has nothing to do at this particular point with feelings. How you feel one way or another is not important here. It's what's going on in your heart, in your thoughts, in your intentions, in your purposes. That's the heart in the Bible. And so the governor of that now becomes the conscience, governing the intentions and purposes of the heart. And I talked about this before, but let me highlight it again. You know, I, I think we get it all wrong on Valentine's Day. All right. Because on Valentine's Day, you see hearts and romance and that kind of thing. And, and of course, we buy, you know, gentlemen, if you buy a, a car that says, I love you with all my heart and give it to your wife, she should, she should slap you really good. Because all you're expressing is good thoughts about her. But if you're going to be biblical about it, there's another organ in the Bible that expresses the word heart, or emotions, I should say, and the deep emotions, and that's the bowels, all right? Ephesians 4.32. Now we're talking about deep emotions. Some of you have been constipated, know how deeply emotional that is, all right? All right, that's emotions. So she, he should be saying to you on Valentine's Day, I love you with all my bowels. Now he's being biblical, right? I want to start a Christian greeting card company. <laughs> My wife doesn't think it's going to go anywhere, but I think at least it would be biblical, all right? All right? Instead of... But that's the idea. I, you get the idea. The heart has to do biblically with how I think, how I purpose, how I plan, what I intend. That's the heart. And involved in that is my conscience, which is like a governor in my intentions, purpose, and planning. It governs it. It informs my intentions, whether or not those intentions are good or they're evil. They're righteous or they're unrighteous. My conscience is informing. And sometimes my conscience is not always trained along a biblical standard. So what I think in terms of my conscience is not always necessarily what is true. All right? At least not according to what the Bible says. 
And I gave this illustration last week in the seminar. Let me go back to it and just refresh your memory. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Here Paul talks about his own conscience. He says, before the Corinthian believers, he says, For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. In other words, he's saying, in my own conscience, my conscience is not betraying that I've done anything wrong. There's nothing that I believe that I've done wrong. But he says, that does not make me innocent. Just because my conscience is not telling me that anything's wrong doesn't make me innocent. What is it that makes me innocent? Answer, but the one who examines me is the Lord. So it's got to be the truth of what the Lord says that determines ultimately whether I'm innocent or not. It's not my conscience. It's truth of what the word of God says. So you'll have people say to you quite frequently, well, you know, what I did, I did in good conscience. And my typical response to that, well, maybe your conscience is trained to a wrong standard. It may be a good conscience to you, but that doesn't, necessarily acquit you. It doesn't acquit you. What acquits you is whether or not the Bible says that was proper to do, whether or not the truth of the word of God says that that was proper to do. That's what acquits acquits you. That's what we're talking about. So you can see this quite frequently. Job chapter 27, verse 6. Job says, I hold fast my righteousness and will not let go. My heart does not reproach any of my days. He's basically saying, I've done an internal search of my own heart, and in my own conscience, I can't find anything wrong. The way the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, translates that is, um, he says, I am not conscious of having acted foolishly. That's the way the Septuagint translates it. I am not conscious of having acted foolishly or sinfully, we could say. All right, while we're still in the Old Testament, let's go back to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 and verses 1 through 5. And I know you're aware of this particular psalm. It is a classic and it's a standard Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5, where David says, he says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Let me stop there just for a moment. To cover a sin does not mean I look the other direction. To cover a sin doesn't mean I ignore it. A lot of people misunderstand misunderstand what covering of sin means. I've heard people say, oh, that guy is a very loving guy. He just covers all sins. Well, that's not what it means. You trace the idea of covering throughout the Old Testament, right in the New Testament, you find out that the idea of covering has to do with the fact that forgiveness takes place. All right? Genuine forgiveness takes place. That's different than ignoring it, turning your back, looking the other direction. Forgiveness actually takes place. So, 
Here in Hebrew parallelism, you can see this in verse 1, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Forgiveness and covering is the same thing. You can see in this, the same kind of statement in Psalm 85 and verse 2. Then look at verse 2 of Psalm 32. How blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long for night and day, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the heat of summer. And I talked about this last week in the seminar about how this is part of the effects of guilt that guilt can have upon a person's life there can be physiological effects that impact a person's life when there is guilt present, especially guilt that has sustained itself for a long period of time. I've I've been counseling for over 45 years, people with severe issues and severe problems. And I think I'm being very fair in making the statement that a good 60% of the people who are severely depressed, their main problem is guilt. Once you deal with the issue of guilt, it's amazing how the depression is taken care of. But nobody's ever taught them from a biblical perspective on how to deal with the issue of guilt. Nobody's ever shared that with them. How do you deal with this? David says, it had a physiological effect upon me. My bones wasted away. Night and day your hand was heavy upon me. That's guilt. My vitality was drained away as with the heat of summer. We know the heat of summer this time of the year. You know, you can't be outside very long without experiencing that. Verse 5. Then he says, I acknowledge my sin to you. This is where he confesses it, right? And my iniquity I did not cover up, which is a statement that equals repentance. The phraseology of that. So I confessed it. I repented. I didn't cover it up. And I said, I will confess my transgression to Yahweh, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And now he rests in that forgiveness. And of course, you've probably heard this before, but it's really key. Verse 1, he uses the word cover. In verse 5, he says, I did not cover up. So the implication is what sins a person uncovers are sins that God covers, right? What sins in a person's life that you uncover before God, in essence, become naked before him and say, this is who I am, this is what I've done, then God then covers you with his forgiveness. Okay? God then covers you with his forgiveness. But there has to be that confession. There has to be that repentance that's there. It's got to be there. Let's go over a few chapters to Psalm 38. Psalm 38. We're building a premise, and we're going to reach some real practical applications of this a little bit later. So just hang in there with me. Psalm 38, verse 1, says, O Yahweh, reprove me not in your wrath, and discipline me not in your burning anger, for your arrows have pressed Deep into me, and your hand has pressed down upon me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities go over my head as a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. My wounds sink and rot because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long, for my loins are filled with burning. 
and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am faint and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. There's that agitation. There's no peace in his heart because of guilt. There's that agitation that's deep inside where he's resisting God. Why is this happening to me? Can't you pick somebody else to bring these difficulties and trials and do? Not me. And of course, David's answer to this later on is that, again, of confession and repentance and seeking God's forgiveness for his transgressions. And we see this a little bit later on. Psalm 51. If you go over to Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4, he says, David says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. In other words, David's got a good conscience in the sense that it's sensitive to God's truth. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and pure when you judge. Now, it's really interesting, the translation of this. I know the Legacy Standard Bible translates it against you. I prefer that word against to be translated before you. It can be in the Hebrew, before you and you and I. I don't think that David is saying it's only against God that he has sinned, because obviously he has sinned against Uriah. He has sinned against Bathsheba. All right, it's, he's not saying that. He's saying before you and you only have I sinned is the implication here. That's my best understanding of this, given the narrative that we have there in 1 Samuel. So the idea then against you and you only have I sinned um, is the fact that I thought I'd done this in secret. I thought it was a private thing. Of course, he thought he was going to keep it quiet until Nathan, the prophet, comes and blows this thing wide open, reveals his sinfulness, and then he does repent. In fact, you can see this in 1 Samuel 24 and verse 5, and it happened afterward that David's heart was struck. It shows you how, how sensitive his conscience was. There's the word heart, lave, being used as an illustration of the conscience in the Old Testament. His heart struck him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So the earlier account... And then later on in 2 Samuel 24 and verse 10, then David's heart struck him after he had counted the people. So David said to Yahweh, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, Yahweh, please take away the iniquity of your slave, for I have acted foolishly. I have acted foolishly. So you can see how in the Old Testament, how critical this was. The issue of labor, the heart. But let's move to the New Testament for a little bit, all right? And there are at least 30 different times we could go to. In fact, the word in the New Testament has a very specific word for the conscience, and it's the word sunidasis. It's a soon compound word that means um, I know with or I know together with is the literal idea. So it has to do with a personal understanding. I know or I know together with. Sunidacious. Um, for example, in Acts chapter 23 and verse 1, it says, Now Paul, looking intently at the Sanhedrin, said, Brothers, I have lived my life in all good conscience before God up to this day. In all good conscience. In other words, 
what Paul is saying is not that he's perfect. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is areas of my conscience where I know that I have wronged, I've dealt with them as quickly as possible. That maintains a good conscience. Areas where I know that I have sinned. Then skip over in your Bible to Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. Now Paul gets very, very specific at what, how God has created all men. And it's very interesting today. You'll hear a lot of contemporary psychologists and you'll hear a lot of Christian psychologists talk about um, people who have no conscience. They have no conscience. That person, I want you to understand, does not exist. He's a pathological liar. That guy has no conscience. That person doesn't exist. Because the Bible is very clear that God gave every man a conscience. No matter how wicked, how evil his deeds are, he has a conscience. I've counseled murderers. And murderers have a conscience, even though the world doesn't believe that they do. It's just that their conscience has been seared. We'll talk about that in a moment. Romans 2, verse 14, look at this. For when Gentiles who do not have the law naturally do the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they demonstrate the law, the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. They have a conscience. So with wicked people like that, either their conscience is seared or their conscience has been trained to an alternative standard. In other words, they've reinvented their own morality, so their conscience doesn't bother them. It's not trained according to the truth of the Word of God. But everybody's got a conscience. Now, our culture of social relativism that comes from a false assumption that the only things that informs the conscience is personal desire or social consensus, that kind of thinking leads to cosmic chaos. And what refutes this is a cross-cultural norms that are everywhere, that everybody understands it's wrong to rape. Everybody understands it's wrong to lie. Everybody understands it's wrong to steal. Common sense notions abiding in the conscience of man is something that is norms that God has given, even in the unregenerate conscience. Someone has defined the conscience as an intuition of the moral law. I like that. An intuition of the moral law. That's the conscience. So you say, where is this in the notes? Well, I'm just getting to the notes. <laughs> All right, that's my preface. Let's take a look at the notes. We find out from a biblical perspective that the conscience that God has given us is a warning light. That's a warning light that reveals guilt. Right? 
Now, our world and our culture today treats the conscience like it is evil. If it bothers them, it's got to be evil. Um, If you're driving down the road in your car and a red light comes on the dashboard of the car and starts flashing at you, what do you do? You pick up a hammer and smash the red light, right? Takes care of it. You just keep driving. No, you don't do that. What do you do? Pull your car over. You open the hood. Take a look what's wrong underneath the hood. There's something wrong. That's what the conscience is. That conscience is a red light. That's what we're talking about here. It is a red light. It is the warning light that reveals guilt. It's the warning light that reveals guilt. It says something's wrong. That doesn't mean your conscience is right, because as we suggested before, your conscience can be ill-informed. You can build your conscience around a false standard. All right? And it's not a biblical conscience. But if your conscience is a biblical conscience, that's your conscience is built around the truth of the Word of God and what the truth of the Word of God says, then your conscience is going to bother you for all the right reasons. It's that warning light that says, there's something wrong. Something's happening. Stop. Take a look. What's under the hood? What's happening deep inside? What are you doing that's wrong? God has given us the faculty of the conscience to help us to identify the presence of guilt. The word literally means the Latin consensia, which means knowledge with another or knowledge within oneself. The Old Testament word is the Hebrew word lave or heart, the inner one's self, inclination, reason. The New Testament koine Greek is sunidesis, a knowing with, and it's been identified in this particular case Um, as the soul reflecting on itself. So our inner man has the information it possesses to evaluate our thinking and actions, much like a diagnostic computer running perpetually, or diagnostic software running perpetually on a computer. Same thing. It's just constantly running that way. And then note this. Note that conscience involves what we know or believe rather than what we feel. We may believe something is right, but feel hesitant or even hostile towards it. And we can feel good about what we know is wrong. Even though it's not necessarily a sin to eat Oreo double stuffed cookies. You can eat some, and it'll plague your conscience. All that sugar, but it tastes so good. All right? It just is yummy. The doctor says, I need to avoid that. So the doctor has informed your conscience. That's why it's bugging you. So, So we may believe something is right, but feel hesitant or even hostile towards it. And we can feel good about what we know is wrong. 
Feelings are often a result of the operations of the conscience, but we are, they are not identical, identical with them. So what are we seeking at this particular point? What are we seeking in relationship to the conscience? Well, the Bible talks about the fact that there's got to be a clean conscience. This is something that we should be warned about. A clean conscience. I read a little bit earlier Paul's statement there in Acts 23 and verse 1. There Paul is before the Sanhedrin saying, Brothers, I have lived my life in all good conscience before God up to this day. Up to this day. So he's, he's trying his best to keep a good conscience. Even though that his conscience sometimes cannot be well informed. And he realizes that. But the other issue here, and there, of course, here's some explicit references in relationship to a clean conscience. You got Acts chapter uh, 23, verse 1. You've got Acts 24, verse 16. 1 Timothy 1, 19. Hebrews 13, 18. You can go over to 1 Corinthians 8, verses 7 through 12. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 25 through 29. All that informs the, the Christian, every one of us, that we need to have a clean conscience. And that involves some of these explicit references, but there's also an implicit principle, too. In uh, Romans chapter 14 and verse 23. So let's go over to Romans 14, 23. So Paul here is saying, within the context of eating meat that had been offered to idols, whether or not a person has a conscience against that kind of thing. Um, and, of course, this usually has been used traditionally down through church history to talk about Christian liberty. In verse 23, he says, But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. So that tells us something else about the conscience. That tells us a little bit about the fact that it's not just what the Word of God says is wrong or right, but if we have a conscience trained to an unbiblical standard, even though the Bible doesn't refer to it, and we go against our conscience and act against it, we're not acting in faith. And that's sin too. If we go again, which tells us how important it is for every Christian to guard their conscience and what trains and informs that conscience. Okay? You have to guard your conscience and what trains and informs that conscience. Because societal customs, other Christians and their ideas and so on may be helpful to you, but that necessarily that does not necessarily mean that what they say is biblical truth. So as a result of that, if you can't do something in faith, then it becomes sin for you. Even though the Bible doesn't call that particular issue a sin directly, you go against your conscience and do it anyhow... That is a sin. 
So that reveals to us exactly how important God sees the consciences in keeping it well-trained and sensitive towards biblical truth. That's important. If we don't believe a certain action is right, then it would be sinful choice to go ahead and do it. If you choose to do something we're not sure is right, we remove ourselves from the realm of faith and obstruct our relationship with Christ. Now, many, many years ago, I grew up in a very, very strict part of Christianity where entering into a, I'm I'm saying this knowing that there are probably Hollywood executives in the room, entering into a movie theater was sinful, right? I'll never forget in 1970 going to see the first movie that I'd ever saw in a movie theater by Billy Graham called The Restless Ones. It was a miserable experience (laughs) because I was doing something against what I believed was wrong. And I sat there in that movie theater and it was one of the most uncomfortable things. I felt for sure lightning was going to come down from heaven and fry me in my seat for being there. Now, my conscience was formed against an unbiblical standard, but I went against that conscience. Was that sin for me? Sure it was. Sure it was. Because I went against my conscience. Even though the Bible didn't say anything about movie theaters. Now, I know you could argue going to some movies in and of themselves are wrong because they're horrible. And yeah, yeah, I understand all that stuff. But I just thought that going to a movie theater was wrong. All right. And I knew what reinforced that idea was that the popcorn was so good. (laughs) If it's that good, it's got to be wrong, right? It was just so good. But that was a sin. And I don't mean to make light of that particular sin. So what are the different kinds of conscience? Let me close off with this. This particular case, there are variations of the conscience referred to in Scripture. And each person has one conscience, but that conscience may respond to various issues differently because of the facts informing it. So any of these could be true of the same conscience in regard to different issues. You follow me there? So each person has one conscience, but that conscience can respond to various issues differently because of the facts that are informing it. What you've learned from growing up in your home, parents, close friends, have all informed your conscience. It may be biblical, may not be biblical. That's part of the facts that are informing your conscience. So any of these could be true of the same conscience in regards to different issues. For example, let me give you four examples of this. The first one has to do with um, a seared conscience, a seared conscience. Now, for the most part, a seared conscience, or actually the Greek word for this in um, 
1 Timothy 4.2, is um, corrupt. It's really a word, a corrupt conscience. Um, such a conscience has been silenced through repeated sin or bad theology or excuses. Um, and repeated sin is the most common because repeated sin is, you know, it's wrong, but you do it anyhow. And you continue to do it until you don't feel bad about doing it any longer. All right. And if you're really honest, we could go around and interview any, everyone in this room. And you've probably had uh, an occasion where that's happened in your own personal life. You don't feel about, you know, it's wrong. I mean, you know it's wrong. When I'm using the word no, I mean in your heart you know it's wrong. But you do it anyhow, and so you keep doing it repeatedly until you don't feel bad about it any longer. Behavioral psychology would be really proud of you. They would say it's working. So you just cause somebody to act against their conscience over and over again with a thing that sort of violated their conscience. It's like taking allergy shots and then till they don't feel bad about it any longer. And last week I used an illustration of that from my sister-in-law's experience as a registered nurse in a Christian hospital. A girl come in pregnant. She was 17, 18 years, years of age came out of a Christian family. She had actually gone to a, to a Christian camp, run away with some guy at that camp, were intimate with him, and through that one experience, she got pregnant. As a result of that, her parents eventually found out. They brought her to the hospital, there to the Christian hospital. And the OBGYN checked her out and said, you're healthy, baby's healthy. For the parents and for the girl, abortion was not an option since they were professing Christians. But the, the medical doctor said, could see that she wasn't handling this really well. And so he, in a sense, wrote out um, a prescription for her to see the local psychologist of the hospital, who was a Christian psychologist. And my sister-in-law was assigned to be her nurse because her parents couldn't go along with her. And during the second session that they had with this Christian psychologist, the psychologist looked at the young lady and said, you know what your problem is? Your problem is guilt. That's your problem. And then he said to her, you need to go out and have as many sexual relationships as you can until you don't feel guilty anymore. My sister-in-law said, I about fell out of my chair. But that was consistent with his behaviorism. His Skinnerianism basically taught him that. Where at that particular point, his Skinnerianism overrode his Christian morality. And this is what he's recommending. Now, would that help her not feel guilty? Sure it would, right? It would work. The Bible says it would work because it will sear her conscience. She'd just go, have, go out and have as much sex as possible until she doesn't feel bad about it any longer. But would she still be guilty? Yes. Absolutely she would be before God, even though she doesn't feel guilty at all. Wow. So, this is what we call a corrupted conscience. 
a seared conscience, for with a repeated sin over and over and over again. The second one is an untrained conscience. An untrained conscience. Or sometimes this untrained conscience is, there is a sense in which, in the purest sense of the term, no conscience is totally untrained. But when we're using the word untrained here, untrained in terms of biblical morality and truth, that's the way we're using it. And Leviticus chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, talks about it. 1 Timothy 1, verse 13, Hebrews 5, 14. Our conscience needs to be continually trained to understand the whole counsel of God because we are culpable for our sins of ignorance as well as for ignorance itself. All right? Let me show you how this plays out a little bit. In our fellowship group and joint heirs, we've been going through the book of Psalms. Pastor Tom and myself back and forth doing the book of Psalms. I recently spoke on Psalm 19. So let's go back to Psalm 19. It's a good example of this. And in Psalm 19 and verse 12, David asks, Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. You see that in verse 12, Psalm 19, verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Equip me of hidden faults. Hidden faults are sins that we do that we don't realize that we're doing. We don't even know. Why? Why would that be? Untrained conscience. That's why. We do sins we don't even know we're. So we don't feel bad because our conscience hasn't been trained according to the word of God. You talk to anybody who's a brand new Christian who's recently come to Christ, they've, all of a sudden they start studying the word of God and they come, and I've had people say this to me repeatedly where they said to me, oh, I had no idea that this was wrong. I've been doing this all my life. I had no idea. Now the Bible's starting to inform their conscience. Who can discern his art? Quit me a hidden fault. The things that I do that I don't even know, realize that I'm doing. And in fact, back in Numbers chapter 15, verses 22 through 29, it talks about those kind of hidden faults. But then he says in verse 13, here's the worst type. All sins can be divided in these two categories. All sins. Also keep back your slave from presumptuous sins. What are those? Those are the sins that we do that we know they're wrong, but we do them anyhow. Those are willful, presumptuous sins. We know they're wrong. So those are the kind of sins that sear the conscience, that cause the conscience to be corrupt. Because one of the characteristics of this kind of a sin is that it has a reigning rule over our lives. And he says that in the very next line. Let them not rule over me. Hidden sins do not necessarily have a rule that really captures the heart because we don't even know we're doing it. But when we calculate in presumptuous sin, okay, what are the benefits of doing this sin um, in relationship to the uh, consequences? We calculate it out and say, oh, the benefits are much better than the consequences. So I'm going to go ahead and do the sin anyhow. That has a capacity within it to capture the human heart, all right? And then it starts to rule and reign as a despotic rule over the human heart. Whoa. 
So David says, let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I will be acquitted of great transgression. So David wants so desperately to get rid of the sins that are, he doesn't even realize he has. And even those sins where he knows he has presumptuously, willfully, the willful sins in the Old Testament are often referred to as high-handed sins, high-handed treason. You know it's wrong, but you do it anyhow. That's high-handed treason, all right, against the Lord. And for this, in Numbers 15, verses 30 through 31, such a person was to be put out of the city, put out of from among the people of Israel, which is kind of the early and separate forms of church discipline, because they're doing it and they know it's wrong anyhow, and they're going to do it anyhow. So they now are not a part of the people of God. So then David says in verse 13, then I will be blameless and I will be, uh, will be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the medication of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. So we're responsible for sins of ignorance and we're responsible for the ignorance itself. And obviously, we're especially responsible for the things that we do that are wrong. And we know that they're wrong. Thirdly, the Bible talks about the overactive conscience. Now, this is the conscience that has been trained by an unbiblical standard. You know, you want to start a fight among Christians? Just talk about. I'm of public school, I'm of home school, and I'm of Christian school. And they all bring out their weapons and aim at each other, all right? Even though there's nothing directly said about those things in Scripture, you know, I can talk, we can talk about principles and stuff. We, in a sense, train our conscience to certain things, and we think that once our conscience is trained to that, then everybody else is wrong in this area. And this is where real judgmentalism takes place. Untrained conscience and then an overactive conscience. Sometimes we believe that a desire, a thought, or an action is morally wrong when the Bible does not actually condemn it. In those cases, we're requiring to act according to our conscience, Romans 14, 23. But we should also seek to retrain our conscience according to biblical standards. Romans 14.22. Have you ever heard people say, you know what? You need to let your conscience be your guide. Terrible counsel. No, our conscience should never be our guide. But it should be our guard. The word of God is the guide. Our conscience is not our guide. Our conscience is our guard. If it's biblically informed, then it's doing good things. It's informed by some other standard other than Scripture, clearly taught principles and truths of Scripture, then it can be a bad thing because it's informed by something that's not God-related. So how do I renew a conscience? Well, 1 John 1, verses 9 and 10 says we need forgiveness from God. 
2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10 says we have to show godly sorrow and repentance over our sins. Matthew 18 verse 35 says we need to forgive others from the heart. And Hebrews 10:22 talks about the fact that resting in the fact that God's or Christ's atonement on the cross of Calvary has taken care of our sins past, present and future. Wow. Yes. Can we do it again? I'll repeat it again. Yeah, forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9 and 10. Godly sorrow, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Forgiving others, Matthew 18, 35. And then Christ's atonement, Hebrews 10, 22. Now, last of all, what we need is a biblical conscience, right? This is what the Apostle Paul talks about, 1 Timothy 1.5, a good conscience. Um, it's interesting how Genesis 15.6 talks about grace preceded the law. You can see that, Genesis 15.6. So an active biblical conscience is facilitated when the experience of grace precedes the demands of the law, where this is reversed, grace is always seen as conditional. But for the believer, grace precedes the law. Last of all, then, what is the solution to guilt and the conscience? The only true answer is forgiveness through repentance. God must remove the guilt of our sin through his appointed means of confession, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins. That's what cleanses ultimately the conscience. Well, I hope this has helped you in terms of a biblical view of what the Bible says about the conscience. Let's bow for prayer. Dear Father, we are a sinful people, and we often have betrayed the fact that our conscience is not trained according to the Word of God. Instead, it is trained according to what the culture says, what other people say, what we think is a part of our own appropriateness instead of being conditioned by the Word of God, sensitive to the truth of the Word of God. I pray for each man or woman here present today that you'll so use the teaching of Scripture to help them, as the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 1.5, have a clear conscience, a good conscience before God and all men. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.